This is Synthetic A Priori, Episode 5. So today, I have a very rich area for us to dig into. So uh, we're going to take ideas about uh, system design, and we're going to tie that, we're going to try to tie that into pattern languages and patterns from Christopher Alexander's work. So I'd like to make that step into Alexander today. And if we can, let's see if we can also make one further leap across, which is from pattern languages to language, to Ronald Langacker's work on cognitive grammar. I think we could start by trying to build our way toward um, the connection between a system design and a pattern language. And so let's actually start off with what is a pattern language and what are patterns. Uh, In the same way that a system design is, is a whole bunch of pieces of functionality that all kind of become a composite assembly and the the this kind of higher order thing does more than all the individual low order things uh a a pattern language is an assembly of of patterns and we can draw a mapping from this sort of functional primitive of a system to a pattern what I mean is a pattern uh, in, in Christopher Alexander's system, in his terminology, is actually a function. Uh, a pattern is, is a functional solution to some functional context. And that turns out to be, of course, much more everyday and practical than I just put it. So to put it in the, in the everyday, uh, sometimes it rains. And when it rains, uh, it's unpleasant to be wet. Sometimes it's nice to, to be in the rain, right? But there comes a point where it's too much. So uh, in such a case where it's unpleasant to be wet, then it's nice to have a shelter, some kind of uh, something that you can go under um, that, uh, that, uh, stops the rain from, from, from landing on you. Right. Uh, and so, uh, this notion of a shelter is a, is a pattern. The, the context is something that happens that is recurring and the form that fits into that context that makes the problem go away or makes it better, or somehow resolves the conflicts in within that context. That is, uh, that form is 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 the like solution or the this the sort of design of the pattern. So the pattern is actually two things. It's 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 a, it's a context and a solution together in a pair where both the context recurs and then the same solution kind of always works. And this is why I think the word, the word pattern 
is applicable uh, and why he used that because in his context as an architect, he was trying to sort of understand what are the things that work kind of over and over because uh, individual people continually need things like houses. And uh, every time uh, it's time to build a house, it would be nice to know about all of the, the, the past knowledge that, that, that people have accumulated through trial and error. Um, uh, knowledge both of the functional contexts that arise in and around a house and the, 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 uh, the functional forms that resolve the tensions within those contexts. So like another ordinary example, um, uh, when, a, when a balcony is less than six feet deep, it is rarely used. This is one of those things like once you hear it and then you look for it, you can't unsee it because you see so many buildings that have like these little shallow balconies that are kind of like token balconies. And yeah, you can stand out there and you can get fresh air for a moment, uh, but you can't actually put a table there and some chairs around and then enjoy some company there because you just need more depth in order for that activity to take place. When I first started to learn about patterns, it was with this idea that there were things that were figured out that you could kind of learn as a kind of encyclopedia of best practices. And then, and then if you knew a bunch of different patterns, then whenever you encountered kind of common problems, you would, you would, you would be most informed to make the best solution. And the way that pattern language languages and patterns kind of landed on the world sort of gives that impression because the original book was called a pattern language and it was singular. So the name of the book wasn't pattern languages. It was, it was a pattern language. And the idea was all of the patterns in the book, which spanned everything from the design of, of city scale structure and urban planning down to individual buildings, down to individual rooms, down to the dimensions of the, the, the divisions between the panes of glass and a window. There's this whole big family of patterns and they kind of made up one language together because you could uh, connect them and, and kind of um, speak sentences with them. So for example, all of the things that we know kind of belong in a house are just patterns. You know, like everything in a kitchen, a kitchen has a counter and it has a sink and it has a, uh, cabinets or it has open shelving or, or whatever these different things are. And the way that there is a certain arrangement in space, you know, between the, the refrigerator and the, and the work surface so that you can cook, uh, all of these things are sort of like settled and figured out. And, and there are such things as, as hallways and entryways and patios. And because we know what these things are and how they relate to each other, we can speak the language of these individual patterns and say, uh, you'll go through the hallway and at the end of the hallway, we'll put the kitchen and the kitchen will open onto the patio. Now, it took me really long time, I think at least 10 years of chewing on, on Alexander's work and trying to make sense out of 
some intuitions that there was something deeper going on here to eventually conclude that uh, what he's doing actually is is uh, he he and his team described a set of recurring patterns that are quite general in this one book. But actually what it turns out is whenever Alexander would, would do a new project, he would create a language for that project. And the language would be kind of what are the main components both in terms of important functional contexts and in terms of functional forms, so both form and context, that are going to come together to make this project what it should be. The book that really kind of connected this for me was his most recent one. It's called Battle. And it's a case study of a campus that he built um, outside of Tokyo like a school campus. And uh, I don't remember the, the language offhand, but um, it, it, it included things like, like a kind of, um, like a main street. They envisioned a kind of main street where you would, like in a small, you know, like in a, in a small downtown of a small town, where you would, you would kind of go down the street and there would be many small individual buildings and storefronts that um, that sort of mapped to the different classrooms or or administrative buildings and stuff like that, and they wanted this sort of experience of going down this main street, and uh, there were a whole set of patterns like that, and this suddenly, when I saw that actually pattern languages were 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 designed individually for each project, this suddenly was like a big light bulb because I thought, wow. That's actually what we're doing whenever we do software and product design. There are, uh, on the, and I'd love to find like better words for this, you know, because this, Alexander's terms about form and context, um, they work, but they, they, they don't roll off the tongue in all situations. There's the, the, the key thing is that there's a, there's a kind of, way that you look at what needs to be there for this whole system to function as a whole. And part of looking at the system and making those judgments are you're, you're seeing kind of these holes that need to get filled. These places where um, something is needed that needs to get solved. And that maps to context. And then there's, well, well, what do we actually do about those different things, you know, to, 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 what do we plug in there? And those are like the forms. And both of those things need to be kind of identified and designed and, and worked out. Let's look at an example from, like, let's say from Basecamp. Uh, in order to create this um, larger system where uh, people who work together on a team can be um, kind of uh, all seeing, where they can all see the same thing, and then as new information comes up that is important for everybody involved to know, 
they can all get informed somehow. I, those are sort of like the contexts that we're trying to solve. It's like, how do I, how do I let people see the same thing, but not see everything? And, and, and how do I, how do I make sure somebody doesn't miss something that they should hear about? Right. And, and, you know, folks who work on software are already going to maybe have some ideas going off. They're going to say, oh, that, that, way, that context that you're describing kind of sounds like a pattern that we have called permissions or access, right? And that thing that you're talking about where how can someone know that there's something that they need to know, it sounds like a notification. So there's patterns that already kind of pop into the system maybe early on um, from our knowledge of, of software systems in general. There's things that have been figured out that we can uh, pull in um, and kind of reuse that are going to be helpful to us. But then there's other things that, um, that are going to be bespoke, that are going to be specific to the problem that we're working on and that are going to become kind of the language that we speak. Uh, so, for example, in Basecamp, we, we not only have the notion of access and the notion of a notification we have something called a bucket and, and a bucket is an abstraction for, uh, on the, on the, let's keep playing this game on the context side. It's like, I not only want someone to have access to something, I want a whole group of people to have the exact same access to one thing. Because if they all have access to the same thing and they all know that they all have access to the same thing, then this creates a kind of um, expectation that if I put it there, they'll all, they'll all be able to get to it. So this bucket is an abstraction of a, or it's, it's, a, it's a thing to which a group has access. So, uh, and, and it is specifically uh, an example, we have actually quite a few things that, that fall into this, this category of being a bucket in Basecamp, but... Uh, one big example is a project, like a project is a bucket and then you can put people on the project and then they have access to it. So we get this thing, this concept called bucket access. And it turns out that, um, uh, within, uh, within a bucket, there's also a, a, a really important pattern that kind of makes Basecamp Basecamp, which is what we call a commentable. A commentable is a thing that you can comment on. And uh, this came out of seeing a context where there's, a, um, there's different things going on inside of the bucket, different pieces of information, different tasks, different documents. And I would like to be able to discuss one thing kind of on that thing. Um, because if I, if, I, if I talk about it somewhere else and I have to be like, hey, do you remember that task that we, that, that, that's over there somewhere else? If I, could, if I could just ask the question directly on the task, then I don't lose I don't lose context, and the person who looks at the comment has all of the context because the original task is like right above it, more or less. And this this pattern of sort of commenting on different things and attaching comment streams, comment threads to all kinds of different things inside of a bucket, we call a commentable. So um, already, just with a, a couple very small examples here, we can start to speak the, the pattern language of Basecamp, which is that um, 
uh, Basecamp is a system where you can grant access to buckets and then people can can be notified and uh, discuss things with each other on commentables. What we've just done there is we've we've taken a very small number of words that describe a handful of very important moving parts that uh, kind of in the spirit of like an 80-20 rule, uh, these few moving parts kind of do the majority of the work in terms of what the overall system is. This is really what a pattern language is. I first heard about Ronald Langacker's cognitive grammar around the same time that I was getting into Christopher Alexander's work, probably at least 15 years ago now, maybe even a little more. And I had no idea that they had anything to do with each other. It's still a little bit... This is one of those things, I will appeal to your intuition to see if there is indeed a good link here. Um, because it's not um, obvious, but it seems to be profitable. So what 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 was Langacker doing? The thing that's so amazing and fascinating about Langacker's work is he he had a, he brought a very different view to linguistics, which is now has actually become quite mainstream. This view is that what language really is is not some special module. It's not some special thing in our brain that is just like the language department of the brain, but that actually language is just a, it's just one special case of very general cognitive faculties. Our ability to recognize something to perceive something as being a different thing than other things, of experiencing something as being sort of the focus and another thing kind of being the background. He actually built this whole sort of theory of how language works and how grammar works and what it is out of cognitive primitives. The other thing that he did that was really is super amazing is he he reduced it down to a really really small kernel so uh there's a there's a, a delicious elegance there especially i mean if you for the sort of axiomatically minded or um someone who likes to get like a lot of degrees of freedom out of very few components this is like a total party because he basically says like Everything that happens in language is is more or less different variations on one fundamental structure. That there is there are symbols, and a symbol is a structure that is has like it's like a you think of it like an axis with two poles. And one pole of a symbol is called the phonological pole, meaning the sound. And the other pole is the semantic pole, meaning the meaning. And unlike uh, other systems of linguistics at the time, he his view was that everything in language 
can be characterized this way. So, so not only is, is like a, let's say cat, cat is in English, you know, a certain sound and it's a different sound in other languages, uh, but it refers to uh, an experience, right, of a certain creature uh, that uh, moves in, 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 and appears in distinctive ways. So there is a, um, this is not difficult to sort of see in this tripartite structure. Uh, but then he, he, he took a further step and he said, actually, um, entities that are more schematic than that in the, in the grammar or in the language, so the notion of a thing or the notion of a noun or the notion of a process uh, or different types of relationships, that all of these things are the exact same thing in the sense that there's a, there's a, there's a phonology for noun, uh, but there's also a kind of... Um, Noun means something. It's not just referring to some sort of special module of some language department in the brain. Like I said before, uh, noun is not a piece of machinery. Noun actually is a kind of con kind of cognitive content. It's a certain. It has a taste and a flavor and a sense and a meaning to it, even though it's schematic. And so, from his view, everything in language is just. Uh, sound meaning pairs more or less and then he has a little bit of of higher order one one level of higher order glue that's extremely minimal to to, uh, to kind of tie that stuff together I first had the idea that there might be a connection between Langacker's model of and I didn't even get into all the interesting stuff about his model because I don't know where to start like I <laughs> uh, um, but I the, the, the first time that I had an inkling that there was a connection um, actually happened with my friend Bob Mesta, and uh, he was demonstrating this technique that he learned that he was calling system mapping. I was actually trying to figure out how to write shape up. We started to look at what is the process that shape up is trying to describe. And then rather just rather than just sort of talking about it, and then writing about it until it fills up a book, could we actually sort of frame that as a system of functions? And it turned out that there is there is a an actual sequence to go from this is the we're getting into the subject of the book here for a moment, going from a, a raw idea to how do I how do I take that raw idea and put some boundaries on it so that I can make the conversation about it productive. And now that I'm having a productive conversation and I've got some boundaries on whether it's important or not and how much time I want to spend on it, how do I sort of work out the epicenters of a potential solution? And when I have a potential solution, how do I sort of look at that critically and try to eliminate major risk factors? And then how do I sort of make a decision whether or not to allocate resources and so on and so on, right? So we took a lot of what were just um, kind of practices that were kind of just in a soup in my head and then and then started to turn them into some kind of a system. Now, the, the hard thing about, I mean, among many hard things, about trying to sketch out a system that you don't really understand yet or that you've never really represented as a system like that is you have a lot of things that mean something to you that you don't know what to call 
And you have things that seem to be necessary, but you don't quite know where to draw the boundary between one step and the next step. Should should the step of taking in a raw feature request and putting boundaries on that and saying, how much time do we want to spend thinking about this? And how much effort is this worth? And the subsequent step of trying to shape it and come up with sort of the key epicenters of a solution. Are these one step or are they two steps? Or should we split it even further into more steps? This is not like a given. You know, the world doesn't come with dotted lines um, uh, and and kind of plot boundaries saying which territory belongs to who. Uh, We impose those things. So, and then even if I had a sense of uh, there is this step that has to do with setting boundaries on the raw idea so that we don't like waste a bunch of time talking about something that, that isn't valuable, right? Uh, this thing, in order for it to actually become something that we can invoke and relate and connect, uh, it has to have a name. You know, because if I keep saying that thing, that step where there's the boundaries and setting and blah, blah, blah. Like this is going to get pretty laborious and this is going to get hard. We're not going to get to that higher order where we are very quickly um, uh, composing um, a bunch of meaningful things into a structure that does something interesting. You know, we're going to be down in the weeds all the time. So what the 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 method that i saw bob doing was we draw a box on the whiteboard and the box was empty and the box represented some thing that we believed needed to happen at some point so this is some functional piece of the system but we don't exactly know uh if we've def- if we've if we've drawn the boundaries correctly around this one box, um, so for example, there was uh, one point where we had a box called shaping and another box called bedding, and each box connected to the other boxes in a sequence with inputs and outputs, kind of like if you were imagining a circuit diagram or something like that, where the current has to flow through the components in a certain sequence in order for them to do their thing. We had shaping and bedding. And then you start to you start to say, okay, what would I put into the box? What what happens inside of shaping so that the input transforms into the output? You know, and then you get to a point where you're like, oh well, there's there's a part of it that has to do with there's a part of it that has to do with sort of figuring out what the moving parts are, and there's another part that has to do with kind of stress testing those parts to see if they are viable and and if you're if they're gonna there's going to be unexpected complexity when you go and try and build those parts. And what you see now is that there's, I've just described two aspects of shaping. So what we're doing is we're kind of imagining splitting this box into two boxes and saying, oh, maybe there's actually two steps there. I don't know what to call those two sub phases of shaping. I don't have a word for those, but I can identify that there's something that's happening that's different. When we're in this phase, we don't write any words on the boxes. We actually just write identifiers, S1, S2, S3, S4. And this means just 
subsystem one, subsystem two, subsystem three, and these refer to these functional parts. The thing that clicked that starts to tie this together is before we're sure about the boundaries and before we have names for all these things, we do have meaning and we do have sort of the beginning of grammar in the sense of how the parts fit together. And so this, this, this idea sort of clicked. Maybe we could actually think of this as uh, the, the systems that we're drawing that we're calling S1, S2, and so on are like all of just, they're, they're all symbols. And we've defined the semantic pole per Langacker's model. But we haven't defined the phonological pole. That is, each piece refers to something that has meaning. It has a form. It does something. It's recognizable. It's like the the part of the shaping process that has to do with finding the right moving parts that are going to be core to the shape of the concept. Like this is something that one can identify as something that happens, something that one encounters in the world or in nature. This is like a thing that happens. And if you see it that way, it's not different than than the not the sound of the of the letters C A T going together, being pronounced as cat, but that that experiential content that is invoked or evoked when we hear or say those syllables, when we say cat, then there's this this certain furry thing that comes to mind. And that 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 furry thing is analogous to that step in the shaping process that how do we, what do we call that? So there's a kind of process now that I think we could, we could draw a correspondence between this process of trying to draw out the system and kind of a proto pattern language or the, the process of sort of creating a language where we have a handful of meanings and we think that they're more or less distinct from each other, that they might refer, be different things. And now they need words. Langacker has this distinction that he calls unit status. And there's the notion of a, of a, of a conventionalized unit and a, and a novel unit. Uh, so, so for example, a conventionalized unit is pencil sharpener. A novel unit is chalk sharpener. So you may have never seen a chalk sharpener before. I don't think I've ever seen one. I don't think they even exist. Um, but uh, the grammar kind of allows you to conceptualize that. So there's a way that chalk sharpener is kind of uh, evoking uh, some content that's meaningful, but it, it's it's not um, it's not likely to to find its way into an encyclopedia or a dictionary. What is it that that make something move from being novel to conventional. Actually, it's repetition. This ties to what we talked about with scale transformations. By referring, if it turns out that referring to a specific chunk of experience 
over and over again, like that furry thing that says meow. If it turns out that that is a thing that we keep wanting to refer to, then we will keep trying to refer to it with some sound. And if that sound is, is too cumbersome, it's actually likely to collapse down into some simpler sound or some more appropriate sound until we find something that fits. And then once it fits, we, we use it again and again. And then this kind of is like uh, carving the riverbed that the, that the water will flow through uh, without effort in the future. And so we go through this process as designers, as people who make systems, where we are experimenting with what are the right functional pieces and then what do we call them? And are the divisions in the right places between them as we try to go through different usage events? Here's another beautiful overlap between system design and language. Language is formed and solidified and and also changes through usage events. As we try to characterize different things that are happening in front of our noses, we reach for different terms and sometimes they're conventional units and sometimes they're novel units and, and we have an evolution going in this way. And it's the exact same thing as we deal with a system under development. There's things that we try to refer to that are clunky and if we develop a sensitivity to the sort of clunkiness of that, then we can start to say, ah, oh, you know, there's probably maybe a better word for that. Or maybe it's not the word that's the problem, it's the fact that there's different pieces of the functionality that are getting pointed at by the same word, right? And so we get into a process of defining the, where does one unit start and where does another unit end? And then uh, if a novel unit becomes useful, and we do indeed need to ch sharpen chalk all the time, then chalk sharpener eventually becomes uh, part of our pattern language. Okay, we've gone on a bit long today, and uh, I think I think we managed to tie those together. There's a lot that we could get into. One thing we might do in the future could perhaps be the relationship now between um, a pattern language as a system, um, unit status, and and conventional versus novel units, uh, and uh, Clay Christensen's work on interdependent versus modular architectures because I think we could draw a straight line from the development of the sort of what is a unit in a language and what is a unit in a value chain, something that's conventionalized and, 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 and therefore uh, produced actually by multiple parties in the same way modularly. So there's a lot of interesting places we could go. We'll stop here today. Thanks again for listening. You can find me on Twitter at RJS. My website is feltpresence.com. And check the show notes for references to the people and works that were mentioned on this episode. See you next week.